Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca. Good evening and welcome back to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. I've had Alex Vesna, who is the president and CEO of Prepared Canada, on my show a couple of times because the guy is an emergency preparedness expert. Um, he is uh, academically trained in emergency preparedness, both with an undergraduate and a master's degree in emergency preparedness. And he's obviously, because of his uh, occupation, followed uh, COVID-19 and our response to it in incredible detail. And so I found uh, chatting with him extremely uh, interesting and, uh, and explanatory in regards to the current situation that we're in. Uh, Alex, uh, welcome back to uh, my show. Thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me again. Thank you. So, um, you know, one of the things that uh, people have been talking about a lot in the last week, um, I, I think primarily because of President Trump uh, and his efforts to reopen the economy, is when can we reopen? Uh, is it going to be safe to reopen? And then some people talking about sort of a new normal that, uh, yes, we'll reopen, but uh, uh, waiters may have on gloves. We may have every uh, second table. Um, that you can sit at, that you have to always stay six feet away from people, that we won't be going to uh, big concerts. What about you? What's your sense of uh, when can we open? How will we we reopen? And is there going to be a new normal? So this is a massive topic. Uh, within, That's why I asked you. Yeah, yeah, You're a really yeah. smart guy. This is a this is a massive topic within uh, academically speaking or uh, professionally speaking within emergency management uh, or disaster management, depending on what department you're in. Uh, you break down the things you do in disaster management into these separate phases: uh, mitigation, preparedness, response, recovery, and then ones are added on or taken off depending on what uh, jurisdiction you're in. But um, the recovery phase, which is a huge section of this entire discipline is basically that question. So the, the question that is being asked is, um, is, is uh, just so you can appreciate this, so massive in scope and nature that we're gonna be breaking this down into a bunch of sub-questions, otherwise there's no way we're gonna be able to get to it. Um, so a few things off of my thoughts on that, just uh, surface level or initially. Um, First, I think that one of the reasons why people are thinking about this in Canada is not just because of Trump, but is also because about a week and a bit ago, uh, our prime minister said that we're going that the overarching strategy uh, for this is going to be that we're going to be in some form of lockdown until the vaccine comes out. Uh, and when people hear that, um, there is an immediate think of, well, I thought this was just going to be, you know, for a week, then I thought this was going to be for a month, then I thought this was going to be until June. Uh, whoa, this is 12 months to 18 months. And it's very different when people hear that from uh, experts on radio shows or on the news, and when they hear that from the decision maker who actually makes the call. So I think that that's also a big factor as to why people are thinking about this now. On what I think the new normal is, um, that is going to be hugely dependent on uh, which specific people we're talking about, which industry, uh, and is going to be hugely dependent on what decisions are made in the next few months. Uh, and frankly, how badly our economy is hit. Um, so I, I think we need to break this down more. On your food service example, I think one of the new normals might be that we have a very, very small food service industry after this, um, especially for dine-in. I think that dine-in is about to see some problems. Uh, traditionally speaking, in any sort of disaster that has an economic component, um, people tend to invest in the home and they tend to not invest in going outside. Any sort of act that goes outside, people don't tend to do it. And any sort of act where people can bring it into their house, they tend to do it. You saw it with every major economic uh, shift that's happened in Canada with electronic purchasing. Arcades um, failed in massive numbers and 
uh, purchasing of gaming consoles increased uh, because people invest in the home. So with food, this is going out to grocery stores, investing uh, in cooking at home, maybe teaching your kids cooking skills, which anyone in uh, culinary will say that is something you should do. Um, and, uh, and not going out to eat much. If people aren't going out to eat, the culinary industry has a problem. Further, many businesses are assuming that, um, not all, but many, are assuming that once this whole thing is over, people are just going to go back and start going out rapidly. That's not going to happen. Uh, people are being conditioned into being afraid of other people based on distance, uh, for better or worse. And going into a crowded environment is going to be less popular. So your demographic is going to shrink. Um, so that's, that's culinary. Um, can you help me refine the question so I can? Sure. What about uh, fitness centers? Uh, you know, you think about yeah. running well, on, a, on a treadmill beside someone that's uh, sweating and, uh, yep. and maybe coughing and sneezing. What's going to happen to fitness centers? Well, fitness centers, another example. You can, many people who have the space can put most of the things you need in your gym in your home. Uh, people have been doing home workouts with like Zumba videos and things like that for a long time. Frankly, many fitness uh, organizations have come under significant scrutiny uh, in forever, but for uh, in especially the last few decades for scamming people and overcharging and just generally being too expensive. So people have been transitioning away from fitness centers to invest in the home as it is. Uh, during the crisis, some fitness centers have come under scrutiny because they haven't let people cancel their memberships while they're, uh, while COVID has been going on um, because they have these clauses where you have to go into the center and close it in person or you're not allowed to close. And if the thing is closed and there's no one to talk to, they declare technicality and keep taking your money. Um, people, you're going to see backlash towards the fitness industry, depending on what part of it, especially fitness centers, uh, towards the end of this, if not already in some smaller papers. Uh, so I don't think the fitness industry is going to do very well. I think the as seen on TV style telemarketing video fitness industry will do well. I think the YouTube fitness, I think everything YouTube is going to do oh, well. Peloton or whatever it is that's got this uh, virtual uh, biking, uh, cycling, spinning classes where you yes. can get people uh, via the internet with people around the world. You think that's going to take off? That'll do well. Um, I think the running room, uh, if, they, if they can survive the retail hit, uh, of, of the closure for this long will probably do well because they, they sell you the equipment and then they coordinate uh, people going on runs together as a community activity. So anyone with we'll that- Just be running uh, not in packs, but six feet away from everybody. Well, maybe, but I mean, social distance will lessen over time anyways. But as far as the business model is concerned, the ones that don't charge you to work out um, or don't charge you some sort of subscription fee and just work as a, a community hub will probably do okay, as long as they can survive long enough to be around after this. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I think the gyms are gonna have a problem. I think the with, YMCA uh, might, may or may not, because the YMCA has a lot of classes, but the gyms are probably gonna have a problem. We're chatting with Alex Vesna, CEO of Prepared Canada Corporation, on uh, the new normal and uh, when we're gonna reopen and how we're gonna reopen. Stay with us, uh, we're gonna have a few messages and then we're gonna be back with Alex for, for some more chat about the new normal. Stay with us. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Well, welcome back to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour Saga 960. We're chatting with Alex Vesna, the CEO and founder and president of Prepared Canada Emergency Preparedness Company. I think this is the third or fourth time I've chatted with Alex over the course of this COVID-19 because of his obvious incredible knowledge of emergencies, emergency preparedness, and his study of uh, infections. Um, we're talking a little bit about the new normal. Um, Alex, what do you think about uh, retail real estate? What's going to happen to malls? What's going to happen to shopping centers? What's going to happen to Main Street uh, small business retail? Okay. Um, you, you said real estate, and my mind went to, uh, to uh, consumer real estate, bu buying, purchasing houses. Um, and then you said, and then I, I really uh, factored in on the fact that you, you meant uh, commercial. Um, and uh, it, it depends on the business. I think the, the biggest issue is not uh, whether or not someone is able to own land and whether or not they're going to be able to ask for rent. The issue is going to be what businesses go there. People need jobs 
and people are going to get jobs from one place or another and people are going to uh, put businesses in uh, commercially zoned land. It, it, the business will change, but I think the, uh, the, the real estate industry itself is in general going to be fine. Uh, you're probably going to see certain people enter and leave the industry, but overall, I think the industry will be fine. I think the bigger thing is you're going to see less of some shops and more of others. Um, we're going to likely have to go to a more by Canadian style economy uh, and which is good for local businesses um, and certain products will be purchased more and others less frankly so I don't think it's as much of a real estate issue so you don't, However, you don't think that this is the end of the the mall square one Sherway are not going to close down because people aren't going to be wanting me to walk around and and window shopping and shopping uh, in close proximity with other people anymore no um, no it's not it's not possible uh, people will what happens with disasters in general so every disaster pretty much in human history what what happens with very rare exception including widespread uh, worldwide crises uh, what, what happens is during the crisis um, everyone gets incredibly stressed out uh, post-crisis uh, anyone who has been affected significantly uh, has changes their life drastically because of significant impacts. So if uh, you lose your house in a house fire, your life changes drastically and the disaster is still affecting you. Um, but if you were next door to the person who lost their house in the house fire, and this is going to sound callous, but data has shown that this is what happens in virtually every case, um, you care for about two weeks and then you go on with your life as if nothing happened. So, really? so you're saying that uh, our desire for... Our, our, our situation where we're social distancing and as you're saying, we're not shaking hands and we're not coming close to people and we're not uh, shopping if, in malls. If you, didn't get, if you didn't get sicker than normal and if you didn't lose someone to this, you're not going to care two, two, two weeks to a month after this thing is over. And it's not necessarily because you're callous. It's just because you, it wasn't that big of a deal. Really? Uh, you do it subconsciously. Now, this is a problem because this interferes with our ability to respond to these things. This is why whenever you... Uh, uh, and this is going to sound really like profiting from people's misfortune, but this is the way that the industry works. Um, two weeks, two weeks after your disaster happens is the, is the window for funding in disaster management. You have two weeks to maximum a month. If it's something massive to go to every person with money and say, Hey, help me fund this X, Y, Z. Um, if there is an earthquake in, in Pakistan, no one outside of Pakistan cares a month after it happens for funding. No one cares. And you, if you want to fix that problem and help people who are destitute, who definitely care because they're still homeless a month after, right? You have two weeks. Okay. But and you're talking about uh, sort of typical emergencies. If that, if that's I'm uh, talking about all disasters. It no, but we're talking about something that's, we haven't seen anything like this since 1919. Uh, yeah. And it happens with everything globally. It happens with wars. Every type of major crisis, this happens. There is a small window where you can get people to make a decision and then they go on to, okay, I have to do what's best for me. There's a small window where people care, where they might throw money at some, might throw money at a problem or might put a lot of extra focus on a problem. And then after that, you deal with a huge amount of pushback and resistance to change anything. And this is largely because of political will and uh, how much play they get from it. The news cycle. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Let me challenge you there for a second. So I bought a whole bunch of uh, stuff I needed from, uh, from a, a home improvement uh, hardware chain. I yep. won't mention which one uh, this weekend. And uh, uh, including stuff for my pool, uh, grass seed, et cetera. So heavy stuff. Uh, in the past, I would have gone, I would have spent probably half an hour, 45 minutes walking up and down the aisles, lugging it through a, uh, uh, a, a cart, lugging it through the cash register, lugging it to my car, packing it, et cetera, et cetera. This mm -hmm. time, I, on the web, ordered it in the morning, drove up at four o'clock, they loaded the back of my car and I drove home. It was a better way of doing business. Yes, but that's not a mall, right? No, like that's, that's the difference. So know, that's I, I, I ordered uh, some clothes on, uh, on the internet. I think that you're gonna see people that get adjusted to online shopping and uh, curbside pickup. No, I agree, and I, agree. I agree. A lot more than they ever would have before. 
Right, I agree, but I'm not. I'm. 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 I'm specifically uh, speaking as to the question about the malls. So the question really was whether or not the malls will exist after this, or what the malls will look like. I agree that we're going to see more Amazon. We're going to see more online purchasing, uh, assuming that there isn't a serious um, border issue and the Canadian dollar doesn't have a trade value issue, but you're going to see more online purchasing and more remote delivery, no question. But we were trending that way before coronavirus anyways. So just, that's not, the malls have had that pressure regardless. Okay. But, but that trend is going to continue. Let me, let me, let me turn right. it on to uh, residential real estate since no, that's no, no. where we're going to well, go well, initially. So nope. one, th one thing, one thing, one thing on the malls, the, the big difference though is who's in the malls is going to change. So the businesses in the malls will change. Why? Because certain businesses won't be reasonable or profitable anymore. You won't have as many food retailers, not food, sorry, clothing retailers in there anymore, unless it's just try it on and then get it shipped. It doesn't make sense. But you're going to see, you're going to see that transition away because they just, they, they're not going to survive the coronavirus economic hit. You're going to see significantly less entertainment because most of the entertainment industry has been crushed by this. You, you talk about um, how after two weeks we forget about the impact, but I don't know. Are people going to want to try on clothes that other people have tried on? Maybe some of them, the, the younger generation that lives without their parents because they're in a different country or in a different part of this country who hasn't lost anyone that just wants to get back to their version of normal. Yeah. It, it's, it's, and I, I know this sounds baffling, but this is a problem because from a decision-making point of view or from trying to um, shift people into uh, safer behavior from when coronavirus happens again, except it's a different virus and it's more lethal. Um, we won't have learned enough. This is the problem we run into every time. I'm concerned about when this happens again and we still haven't learned our lesson and still haven't changed anything. Well, I worry about this reopening that we haven't learned our lesson and, and you probably know this better than I, but there's a, quite a history in uh, 1919, 1920 of different different countries in different cities that opened up too early versus ones that uh, kept the social distancing a little longer. And the ones that opened up too early ended up having a huge second wave and economically and health-wise were hit far more dramatically. Well, uh, in our second conversation, we talked about the three strategies and the third strategy, which is the one we're doing now, I, I told, we talked about how opening up again is what you eventually have to do and it creates a second wave. And it's, you open it up basically at any point before a, a vaccine causes it. So opening up too early is a long time. Like a lot of people don't realize that opening up too early might be 10 months from now is still too early. 10 months. But we don't have a vaccine yet. Okay, we are not, we're not tracking people with testing. We're tracking highly vulnerable people in clusters. So the, the data that you're getting from Ontario and from Canada about, I'll speak Ontario specifically because most people have seen the Ontario data more. So uh, the data you're getting on, 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 on Ontario is about small subset communities. You're finding out uh, a good understanding of who's infected in a nursing home, in a hospital. You have no idea who is infected in the greater populace. The data, as far as decision-making is concerned for uh, Ontario decisions or whether or not to let up a citywide lockdown is completely useless. It, if, if, you haven't uh, tested enough. No, well, if, if you have a background in statistics, this will make sense. If you don't, then uh, please bear with me. Um, whenever you test a population, whether or not your test makes any sense at all or is frankly worthless is dependent on how big of a sample you have relative to how big your population is. If your sample's too small, then your test is worthless. And we're making decisions based on millions of people with sample sizes that are four orders of magnitude smaller. Like, it's pointless. Like, it's, I'm not saying it's pointless to test, but it's pointless to make widespread decisions off these tests. Like, why would you do it? And if you speak to any expert on this, um, that looks at statistics, they'll say the same thing because it's basic statistics. Okay, so, so there's been a huge amount of attention to the testing of uh, do you have the, the virus? Um, sure. What uh, has only become really noteworthy of late is this antibody test. And I haven't even heard of it uh, being available in, in Ontario. Is this antibody test to find out whether you have been infected, uh, even if you're uh, not currently infected, available yet? Um, that's a better decision uh, question for the uh, 
uh, Spartan's making them, right? No, Spartan is oh, making, uh, making the other one. Handheld DNA testing yeah, 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 for yeah, whether ones. you have the virus. I, uh, I don't who's know. making the? Yeah. I forget who's making the the other one, the antibody yeah, tests. Um, that's a question for the manufacturers of the anti antibody tests, antibody. to be honest. Um, that, that's that's a question for them. But the good thing about the antibody tests, um, which is a testing that you can make decisions on, uh, is if you have the antibodies, and if we are assuming that anyone who has the antibodies that's been non-symptomatic for X amount of time can get back to work, then you can do a case-by-case -case system of, okay, these people who've been infected, they're basically free to walk around um, with sufficient PPE so they don't like shake somebody's hand who's infected then shake somebody else's hand who's uh, not infected because you can't do that. And I think handshaking's probably gone forever. If we get back to a state where people are handshaking again, we learn nothing. But, <laughs> but, um, but uh, the good thing on that is you can do case-by-case -case decision, okay, you can get back to work. So that test has, um, is scalable and you can do something with it. Um, the, the, the tests where you're trying to see if someone's infected, which if you can spread before you're symptomatic, have a huge false negative and false positive rate, especially false negative, um, you, you need to test the whole population. Right. And we're not because you can't because we have community spread. Like as we said in the second talk, the second you have widespread community transmission, it's over. It's over. You have something that spreads before you're symptomatic, widespread community transmission, it's over. Doesn't matter what you do, everybody's getting it. You can't stop it unless you bring in the military and lock down the entire country and lock all the nurses in the hospital and make lock all the people who work in the um, long-term care homes in the long-term care homes and literally stop everybody from moving anywhere. And there is some huge human rights issues with that. And there is some huge logistical things that you have to do there. And we could, you know, do that and end this whole thing in four or five weeks. But that means locking nurses in a hospital while they watch people die for a month, which the mental health impact is out of this world. But anyways, there's a rant. It was a fascinating article I read just today about uh, how the vast majority, I think it was over 80% of the people uh, on ventilators do not uh, recover. And so therefore, yeah. uh, even though we're putting people on ventilators and hoping for the best that the that the outcomes aren't very attractive and that nurses are watching a lot of people uh, not succeed. Yeah, no, I've, um, I've actually submitted multiple articles to uh, several news organizations about that issue and they don't want to print it because it's too, uh, it's too sad. But the, uh, the reality is with ventilators, if you have to go on a machine that breathes for you, um, it is very difficult to take people off the machine. So one of the medical complications that you have with ventilators is, um, this is not exactly true, but I'm going to kind of simplify it. Uh, the lungs basically forget how to breathe on their own. So if you hook someone up to a ventilator, there is always a chance that you can't unhook them and they're locked to it until they pass on. Um, ventilators are not a cure. They've been claimed, they've been treated like a cure, especially in the States. They're, they're being claimed to be this sol solution for coronavirus. They're not. They, they're, 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 it's, anyways, it just, it's, it drives me up the wall. Drives me up the wall. Um, but uh, the misinformation. Well, you're not the most encouraging guy to chat with. Uh, I'm sorry. But it's uh, good to hear the truth. Uh, we're going to take a break for uh, messages and come back with Alex Vesna, Prepared Canada, in just a minute. Stay with us. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on Saga960am.ca. Well, welcome back to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour, Saga960. We're chatting with Alex Vesna, CEO of Prepared Canada. Alex, um, you know, I think it just came out recently that uh, Wuhan... Uh, China increased their um, numbers of deaths by 50%. 50% error in the reported number of deaths. Um, what's going on? Are they just not reporting correctly? Okay, so this is going to get into um, whether, or we whether or not it's okay to trust the Communist Party of China and uh, hiding of data and... Uh, frankly, um, 
international politics and military espionage and conspiracy theories and a whole bunch of other things. Um, so I'm going to, and, and you, you did, you did mention that I'm being quite negative and I, unfortunately because of the, the topic and the, the stance that people in my industry tend to have when you ask them, when you get them honest, we tend to be honest. Um, I, I am being fairly negative. So I'm going to caution people with a positive note here. Um, whether or not the communist party of China is doing bad things and has caused undue hardship on the world with, uh, with lying about the data, which is what's being said in the media right now. Um, it doesn't really affect us right now because you can't go back in time and change it. And Canada isn't the type of political power that can push China around. Further, you're not the prime minister, unless you are the prime minister and you're listening to this program, which, hello, but you're, you're, you random person who lives in Mississauga or around the GTA, you're not the prime minister. This isn't your problem. Uh, you're not, the, you're not uh, in the federal government, probably. This isn't your problem. So I wouldn't get too angry or, um, or sad or insert negative emotion about that problem when you could be focusing more on uh, why your kids never listen to you about doing when you ask them to do their homework when you're now also their teacher, which is a much more funny problem. Having said that, um, what do I think about China? Um, I think that there's been some really interesting rumors that have come out. Uh, I think that we're going to find out uh, more and more and more, and then none of it's going to be confirmed because it's China and because getting information out of a country that is that big, that doesn't want you to get information out of it is very, very hard unless you're um, in the intelligence agency and that stuff doesn't tend to get printed. Um, I think that there's been some fun rumors. Uh, there's rumors that China made this as a bioweapon and they released it to stop the Hong Kong protests. That's really dark um, and we can go there, but is it confirmed? No. Uh, does China want to harm its own people and release the plague? Probably not, right? Uh, did they undersell their numbers because of the political implications? Probably, but most countries would. Um, and saying that they wouldn't is a bit, I think... Um, I don't want to say naive because it's a negative word, but it's not intended that way. Uh, if, if you know the way a lot of um, governments try to do crisis communications and the way they try to sanitize information and uh, take the less risky path, telling the world that you have um, an economy crushing plague that's going to restructure the way we do everything everywhere and tank your economy is not something that most governments are going to want to be first on. So most governments are probably just going to lie or find the data that is the most um, pleasant to them or find that some scientist that agrees with their point of view and put it forward. So well, is that true? I wouldn't be surprised. I don't, I don't know. Let me again challenge you on this, Alex. Sure. So the U.S. came out with their statistics based on some work done by uh, uh, the University of Washington that said that there was going to be 100,000 to 200,000 deaths in the United States. And, and the actual... Um, model when they first released it was 36,000 to 240,000 or something like that. And they sort of uh, um, estimated or aggregated it to, to 100,000 to 200,000. And now I think the numbers are in the 60 to 80,000. Um, so, you know, maybe they were coming up with a, a range of numbers so they could beat it and make it look like they did a far better job. So the difference between cases and deaths is it's pretty, art, it's pretty easy relatively speaking, to track a dead body. Um, it's to be off by 50% on your number of deaths, which is as far as I'm aware, what, uh, what we're hearing about the statistics from China Wuhan. is not China, but just from Wuhan. Sorry, Wuhan. Sorry. Uh, but from whatever to, to be off, to be off on death statistics, that's tough. Well, like, okay. like, like, even like, in, it's it's hard to do York, that. Alex, Alex, even in New York State, they're sure. coming out with uh, substantial numbers of people that have died at home, and they don't know yeah. whether they've died of COVID nineteen or what, uh, and they're not testing them if they're already dead. Um, and, right, but fifty percent uh, significant numbers of people that are dying in in 
in whether it's in poverty or in uh, seniors' homes or or whatever. Right, but fifty percent. It's a big number. Like, uh, yeah, fifty percent. Like fifty percent margin of error. Once again, is not that. No, that's no. You you would you would have cholera outbreaks. Like this is what happened in. Uh, the heat wave in 2011, don't quote me on the year, uh, in, uh, in Europe where in Paris, um, stati- um, disproportionately, elderly women died because they uh, were the last uh, alive in their family and the family left and you had huge amounts of elderly women dying from a heat wave in Paris and they had to uh, take ice cream and meat out of freezers and throw the bodies in the freezers because they're having a cholera problem. Like when you have that level of unconfirmed mass death that you're not tracking, you have other public health problems that sweep right through your population because dead bodies carry disease. So no, like it's, there's, there's, if, if that was true, um, they have such a huge public health problem. It is unbelievable. Um, like the, it's not, coronavirus isn't even the scariest thing anymore. Um, depending on who you talk to in, in infectious disease, um, in an environment where you have that many untracked dead. But we're, here, here I am being negative again. Uh, <laughs> you got me on my, on my, on my negative talk. But, the, but yeah, so I don't believe 50%. I, re- like that, there's, I, I sincerely doubt that that is legitimate. Um, if, if so, then the public health department in Wuhan is, um, no, no, this was confirmed this week that, uh, the Wuhan death number was officially increased by 50%. No, no, I know that. No, no, no. I, I mean, um, it, it's a question of whether or not they just found out magically or whether or not they were hiding the number. So I significantly doubt it was anything other than hiding the number because oh. magically finding out it's 50%, uh, a 50% increase has, it, it, it speaks to the negligence of your public health department. That is, that is, that is completely out, out there. Like magically half, uh, one, uh, 1. 1.5 times more people are dead. You, 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 you have to create mass graves, burn bodies, put them in freezers. You have to take a, take a religious right that you want for funeral. It's out the window. Like, like you, the stuff that you have to do with that type of magical we have dead number is completely out of this world. So no, I, you would have news in China um, about other public health things happening that are completely out there at the so same time the if that number happened. Okay, so the number was just hit. But if it's going to be hid like that in Wuhan, then that would suggest it's been hid like that elsewhere in China as well, both from an infection as well as a mortality standpoint. Possibly. Now, I'm st- it's still possible that there is, uh, the public health department is so taxed and or uh, it, there is so much negligence or incompetence there relative to what Canada does uh, that um, that uh, that actually just happened, which, wow. Uh, but uh, but yes, if it is being hid there, then it stands to reason that given how of a, how national of a country that country is, it is probably being cha- uh, hidden everywhere else. OK, so you said that, you know, that unless you're the prime minister of Canada, it doesn't really change what you're uh, what you're doing. Um, today, no. But, you know, there's been people that have commented about uh, China overestimating their GDP growth for years. And, uh, and so therefore, if they overestimate their GDP growth and have not lied, but, but misinformed in regards to something as, uh, as macro and as important and as uh, central bank oriented as that, then it certainly makes sense to me, at least, that infection rates and mortality rates could have been uh, uh, misstated in, uh, in, in, uh, in public health announcements. If sure. that's the case, doesn't it mean that, there, that this disease that we've been using China as one of the best proxies for, since it's the earliest, is far more deadly and far more infectious than even we were thinking about it last week? Well, maybe, but I don't think we should have been using China as a proxy. Like when we had our first and second conversation, specifically the second one that was more about uh, the disease as, as opposed to preparedness, I never talked about using a proxy. I talked about, doesn't matter, you have any disease over this threshold, 1% fatality that spreads like the flu, you, 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 you lock everything down. So the, the, like that, that's, you, you don't need to gauge your response based on what another country is doing. It's, um, I'm going to go into a bit of a disaster management rant because I think it's important for people to understand where this decision making comes from. Um, and actually, we'll do a, back, a bit of back and forth on this. Um, just throw it out. Let me know what you think about the, about, uh, about the thought here. Um, Brian, uh, 
Is a tornado a disaster? Yes. No, because a tornado can happen somewhere where no one's populated and doesn't hurt anything. And this is the big problem that people have when they think about disasters. They assume that the thing that's going to hurt them, the threat, the hazard, the bad thing is in of itself a disaster. A disaster happens when something hits something that you care about and the something that you care about has an effect. And now that wasn't a trick question or intended that way. It was to challenge the... the okay, the, so a tornado in an urban environment is a disaster. No. A tornado in an urban environment that happens to kill a bunch of people, if you care that a bunch of people dying is a bad thing, which everyone does, um, is a disaster. But a tornado that goes through an abandoned lot that you wanted to do demolition on, that does a demolition for you, is not a disaster. It's stimulus. So there's a very big difference here. Okay. No, no. And this is now, okay. Your, your, your mind's kind of breaking there, but let me, let me, let me, uh, let me, let me, let me tell you why this is important. Um, I heard from, uh, it was, it was on power and politics, um, uh, very recently, um, the chair of the, uh, I forget the committee, but they, they, they're, they're the ones focusing on China right now said that, um, this crisis was not caused by Canada. All crises are caused by the people who are affected by the crises. It's by definition of how a crisis works. The, the, the coronavirus didn't hurt Canada. Canada's response to the coronavirus hurt Canada. It all, Canada's response to the coronavirus also helped Canada. But whenever you make a decision about a response to anything, you need to weigh what's going to happen from that decision. We, we, the only reason why we're, we're hurt by coronavirus is because we choose to be affected by coronavirus. Does that make I know that's kind of out there. Um, I'll, I'll explain this with a health and safety example. Uh, if, uh, if someone falls off of a ladder in, in, a, in a workplace, whose fault is it? Uh, the person who falls off the ladder. See, um, now most employers would have a huge problem if they actually said that. So if, uh, if someone falls off of a ladder in a health and safety environment, the, per the, the fault is usually the employer because they didn't train the person or didn't put a process in place so a person can't fall off a ladder. Right. Now, if, if, um, if someone falls off a ladder, do you blame the ladder? No. No. So why are we blaming the coronavirus? Why, why do we have, why are we, why are sick people dying? Is it because of the coronavirus? No, it's because we didn't stop the coronavirus, which we could have. Um, is, uh, are we, uh, why are we blaming, uh, why are, why is there economic damage? Because we chose to pick economic damage over life loss, which most people, myself included, would say is the right decision, right? But we create these things. We are the cause of these, of these bad things happening. And you need to think like that when you're looking at managing these events. And frankly, less deaths from workplace accidents would happen if we thought like that in health and safety more often. Um, anyways, Ryan? So I'm taking a look at this graph of COVID deaths since the, the, the I guess, the, since the third death was, uh, was found. And on a per capita basis, we're doing okay, but on an absolute basis, we're not. Yeah. And relative to China, we're almost as bad as China. And thankfully, we're not nearly as bad as the United States. So right. what, you know, so I guess your one answer is, I don't know if we can trust the Chinese number. Well, um, we can't trust our own number. Okay, can't trust our own number. Are we doing something right in Canada versus the United States? Are we still doing not enough? Um, we're, we're, still not, we're still not doing enough, period. Um, and in terms of trusting our own number and, and going into that, our, the death number is an indicator of how effective we are of treating the cases once we have them. We have no idea how many cases we have. All decisions on fixing or solving the coronavirus are based on stopping spread. Because once you have it, it's a roll of the dice to see if you need to go on a ventilator and then a roll of the dice to see if the ventilator works. So we have to stop you from getting it in the first place. Anything after that point is damage control, but it's not effective preventative strategy. And we have no information on where it is, so we can't make a preventative strategy except ones that do the same thing to everybody. We have to collectively choose that we're going to assume everyone's infected or could be infected or whatever um, and do a strategy that affects everybody without exception 
or the people who are the exception will be the ones that are infected that spread it everywhere else. So because we don't have data. We don't have, we don't have a track. Closing down the population. Basically, because we don't know where it is. At the same time as Donald Trump is starting to talk about reopening the country in uh, two weeks' time, you're saying we haven't done enough. No, we, you close the border too. Like, like what I'm talking about, if you actually want to stop this thing, and this is, this is, this is, we haven't even used the Emergency Act yet, which baffles me. But if there is, if there was a time to, to, to engage the Emergencies Act and declare a national emergency, is it not now? But anyways. Um, what you would have to do, reasonably speaking, to actually lock, shut this thing down in its tracks is you'd have to stop everyone from leaving where they're located for four to five weeks. Uh, that gives the public health department enough time to catch up and then find out which people that are locked in place actually have something and keep them locked in place indefinitely until they're, till they're okay, and then everyone can come back out. At the same time, you have to completely shut down the border. And I mean completely. People who, who go back and forward across the border to deliver food can't. You need to be able to have them drop their load off across the border or at one side of the border without leaving their cab and then have some other person from the other side of the border take it. You, you have to, you can't have people driving from Ontario to California uh, off across five day trips. And right now, by the way, with you hear about heroism from nurses, let's talk about truckers for a second. Um, people are driving from Ontario to California and back to Ontario because they've come across the border. They have to isolate for 14 days. And because they work within those 14 days, again, they can never see their family ever. Period. They can't go home ever. They must isolate away from their family and they work again within the isolation period. Cross-border truck drivers cannot see their family for the next 12 months. We haven't talked about that. Anyways, so you shut down the border because truck drivers should be able to see their family. Hello. Um, and any nurses that work in the States that come across either live here now or don't come across. And frankly, the nurses in hospital, the people who work in the long-term care homes have to live at their workplace for the four to five weeks because they can't leave. And then all food that isn't on location gets to, that, that you need in an emergency gets distributed by military, which are all in hazmat suits. Like I'm talking about something out of a horror movie. But it's- That's what needs to happen. Yeah, well, you have to stop all transmission for four to five weeks. When you're talking about stopping all possible transmission, you have to stop every single person from touching every single other person. We're not talking about social distancing. We're talking about putting a brick wall between everybody. Like you, you have to. Well, and there are rumors that people in China and South Korea did that, that they were actually closing people into condos and apartment buildings and not letting them leave. Yeah. Well, yeah. But now that we don't know where it is because we don't have it tracked, you have to do it to everybody. That's once you have widespread community transmission, you have to do it to everybody. And in Korea, they can do that because they have mandatory military service and their culture is used to locking down and listening to the government. So if the government says do it, they're used to, they have some familiarity with, yes, sir. And yes, in numerous states in the United States right now, we see uh, protests that yes, throw a hoax and open up the country. Yeah, well, we, look, the United States ha is not going to solve this. The United States is a country based on liberty and freedom and freedom of speech trumps human life. Freedom of speech is greater than human life in the United States, fundamentally. Freedom of speech is the most important thing to them, period. No, so, I think it's freedom of uh, handling a gun. Well, that too. But freedom of anyone, if you talk to anyone about freedom of handling a gun versus freedom of speech, most of them will say they prefer freedom of speech as the only thing they prefer more than freedom of handling a gun. But anyways, um, the... They're not going to fix this. They're going to have widespread spread. So what you basically need is to lock down Canada, let the United States let it spread everywhere like they're going to let it happen. And then once they have herd immunity, we can look at maybe relaxing the border. Probably not. Okay, we're chatting with Alex Vesna, Prepared Canada. We're going to take a break for messages and come back uh, with a couple more final thoughts. Stay with us. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Well, welcome back to the Brian Cranby Radio where we're chatting tonight with Alex Vesna, CEO of Prepared Canada Canada. Prepared Canada. 
Corp. Um, and uh, he's an emergency preparedness expert. And he's been giving us a pretty sobering, but I think realistic uh, um, outlook of uh, COVID-19, what needs to be done. And Alex, let me just give you a scenario based on what I have heard from you and see if uh, um, it's potentially right. What you've described is uh, that we've had an okay response, I guess, in Canada. Um, and, uh, but yet, at the same time, you think we need to do far more if we're actually going to stop the spread. And yet you are convinced that the United States, because of their freedom of speech um, uh, desire, uh, is uh, not going to be able to close down uh, as much as they need, may reopen, have these protests, going to have readmission. So therefore, my assessment is what's going to end up happening is you're going to have community transition, transmission in the United States far greater than, than in Canada. You're going to have a resurgence in some of these states and cities where they've reopened. And so therefore, the United States is going to be the hot spot in the world for the next while. And so therefore, if we want to stop something coming to Canada, we're going to have to close the border between Canada and the United States firmer than it ever has been dreamt of being closed. What do you think of that? Yes. You're the, the, you have to assume because you can spread before you're symptomatic unless we magically create a test that has no false negative rate that finds out that early when you're infected, which we've never had for anything um, in medicine. Uh, you, you, you have to assume that everyone has it and everyone can respread in your country. So the, the reality is that every single person is a potential hazard coming across the border, which sucks. It like that. I I get that, it. That's going to change uh, all of our supply chains for food, for uh, for garments, for uh, everything. Yes, yes. It necessitates that at the the border crossing point, you have to have a dumping dumping place or some place where um, the American uh, supplier can drop something and the Canadian supplier can go pick it up. So we are going to have to have massive lots or something where uh, where uh, um, the, their their vehicle comes through the border parks, leaves back across the border, ours comes and picks up load. Um, so, and their driver is never allowed to leave the cabbie. A couple of weeks ago, Trump was talking about deploying the American military to the U.S.-Canadian border. Sounds like it's going to be the Canadian military that's going to be deployed to the U.S.-Canadian border. Uh, or both. And you wouldn't do it because the military has guns. You'd do it because the military can help augment CBSA, uh, Canadian Border Services. So you can... Um, so it's not like, and when people hear deploy the military, they often think that this is, you know, becoming a war. The military is a very, very powerful tool, not because of its guns, but because of its organizational structure and because they can be trained on doing virtually any task that is uh, linear process based, especially very quickly and augment another organization. So yeah, probably, but it's not deploy the military because we're going to have a, a wall of guns. It's deploy the military because CBSA is going to just need help. Right? Like, Alex, yeah. Why are we in this situation? Why weren't we better prepared? Okay. Um, there's, so let's take, let's take us back to SARS. Um, you remember when I was talking about how uh, you only have about two weeks after something and then people forget? Yep. So uh, we, uh, we, we, we forgot. Um, what, what basically happened after SARS is a bunch of things were recommended to be put in place. They were done immediately. They were done during SARS, which is good. But then it came time for funding and it came time to test it. It came time to take it seriously. And that happened uh, a few years after SARS, really. Um, in emergency management, traditionally what is done is uh, we do exercises. And I don't mean like, you know, fitness exercises. They're more like military exercises. Um, where you have uh, people try to go through a, a make-believe disaster and they uh, try to learn things. Now, usually what you want to get out of an exercise is lessons learned in something called an after-action report. The lessons learned, in order to get them, you have to fail somewhere. So if your exercise isn't designed to have people fail somewhere or fail significantly, then there's no lessons that you can learn. Unfortunately, if you're in the disaster management department or emergency management department of some of these industries, which is shrinking and shrinking, for example, emergency management Ontario got rolled into the fire marshal's office a few years back because of funding cuts. Um, and there is a significant difference between fighting a fire and fighting an emergency. 
but anyways, um, this stuff happens all the time. It's an, it's an auxiliary augmented program. When you need to justify your existence, justify your staff's existence, and justify your funding all the, time, uh, all the time, it's generally not a good idea to tell everyone around you that they're idiots and they're gonna get people killed, which is exactly what you effectively do, although more tactfully, when you do a fail exercise and you show a bunch of people in the government that, thinking that, they're, that think that they're following their mandate and doing a good job, that they're doing things that will result in people dying. So when MERS-CoV, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus, um, became the public health situation from hell nightmare, and public health uh, communicable diseases division people started going um, with emergency management people to run these exercises, they had to tone them down so that people wouldn't shut off and so they would be palatable. Frankly, we don't have in, in many people in this country the discipline or skill set to run exercises that work uh, because we haven't done them for a very, very long time. Only really the military, a few police organizations, and the Americans know how to do them. So because we have practiced, but we haven't practiced anything that matters. Like if you do a, if you do a fire drill, and as part of the fire drill, you stay in your house, do you, do you tell the person they won and they didn't burn alive? No. No. Well, that's what we're doing. Right. Like that's what effectively we're doing with emergency management. When the police do active shooter drills and these actually are better, um, they they have officers uh, in, in the drills act as the uh, assailant and they have officers act as the as the police. Um, and then when the assailant comes in, they'll they'll do things that assailants would do and they'll actually shoot people and tell them, by the way, you just died. Right. And then they go, oh, no. And the policy changes because they go, oh, I didn't think about that. So the bottom line is that you think that we have not had tests done that have been negative enough, and so therefore we haven't learned enough, and so therefore we're not as prepared as we should be. It's not about negativity, it's about challenge. We it's haven't challenge. challenged people. So it's, we, you need to challenge, uh, challenge organizations with things that they can handle that stress them. And this is, the, this is the careful balance. Whenever you're designing a good exercise around this stuff, you have to ease people into something. You have to um, design something where uh, it, you turn up the heat, but you don't turn it up so fast that they shut off. Um, and you don't turn it up so fast that the exercise actually causes as much damage as a disaster, which is a problem. Like if you're, if you're doing an exercise with a power, with a, with a, with a manufacturing plant, your exercise can't be, I just shut off the power and then have you lose operations for a day because you, you can't do that. But you, you need to stress people enough where they stay engaged, but they don't, they don't, they don't shut off and they still learn something right. and we just don't do it. Well, Alex Vesna, we should have been listening to you more. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks, Th thanks for having me. And thanks for helping Diego with the last statement. Okay. Yeah. That's Alex Vesna, CEO of Prepared Canada. You can get him at uh, preparedcanada.ca. Prepared.ca. Prepared.ca if you want any help in being prepared next time. Thanks, Alex. We'll talk to you again. Good night. Thanks, no radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca.